This is a case about 27-year-old first-grade teacher Ellen Greenberg. Matt, I've been at this for a little over six and a half years, okay? I have yet to find an individual that has anything, any type of disparaging remark to make about Ellen. Everyone says all she was about was getting people together. Ask anyone and they'll tell you that Ellen was full of life and love and excited to teach. She was making plans with her family and she was newly engaged. But as you know, things are not always as they seem. What's, what's really um, uh, strange is she never spoke of her, her engagement at school. That's Thomas P. Brennan Jr., the criminal investigator and analyst who doesn't believe that Ellen up and killed herself. He thinks that she was murdered and won't stop until he can prove it. They're saying this is a suicide. That's bullshit. Now, before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences and might not be for everyone. After the episode, I have a shout-out for investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's a way for you to be part of the podcast, and reviews really help independent podcasts like this one get noticed. More on that after the case. The mystery of Ellen Greenberg, suicide or murder. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the social distancing studios in Las Vegas, Nevada... To your ear holes. This is True Crime Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder, mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, your host, a man who sings happy birthday twice when washing his hands, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 32 Mystery, Ellen Greenberg. Murder or Suicide, which takes us to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's a town with more than a million and a half residents, one of the oldest cities in the United States, founded before we were even a country. It's where the Founding Fathers met and signed the Declaration of Independence. You can see the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall there. It, but it's not just about history and architecture and culture. It's a sports town. They have the Philadelphia 76ers, the Eagles, the Phillies, and it's the center of education with everything from Ivy League to public K-12. through And that might have just been the draw for Ellen Ray Greenberg to settle down, to stay, and teach. Ellen was an only child born and raised in New York City. She loved children. She loved being in Philly. But on January 26, 2011, something tragic happened. She died inside her apartment as a result of 20 stab wounds, including 10 to her back and neck. There were bruises all over her body, and her body was seated, almost positioned, upright against the cabinets. A coroner called it a homicide, but then changed it to suicide. Yet there was no note, no reason, and her parents, Josh and Sandy Greenberg, don't believe it. So they sought the help of a criminal investigator and analyst by the name of Thomas Brennan Jr., 
whose mission is to get Ellen's death investigated and reclassified from suicide to homicide. He is a 25-year police veteran and former chief of detectives. He tells me that he believes Ellen's murder was a cover-up. He says that he has proof and won't stop until he gets justice for Ellen. I spent 25 years with the Pennsylvania State Police, and while I was with the the, uh, State Police, I was one of four investigators from around the nation selected to attend a one-year fellowship with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico. Uh, Once I returned to the State Police, I started the Criminal Investigative Assessment Unit, and we trained 25 troopers from around the state to work cold cases and other violent-type crimes. When I retired from the state police, I went to work for the FBI Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico. Um, I'm a founding member of the Pennsylvania Homicide Investigators Association, founding member of the International Homicide Investigators Association, and uh, I'm a special member of the VDOT Society, and I was inducted into the International Police Hall of Fame. Well, we could do a whole series on just you. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> I was waiting for you to take a breath. That was so impressive. <laughs> Again, thank you for talking to me. Um, how did you get involved with, with, the Ellen, with Ellen's case? How did you get involved with Ellen's family? Um, two friends of mine, one a retired dentist and the other a judge, were friends of the family. And they both knew what I what I did regarding cold cases. So um, they asked me to meet with the parents to see. They knew what uh, the struggling that they were going through, and they asked me if I could meet with them to see if I could help them out. When I met with the parents, uh, Sandy and Josh, they provided me with the documentation that they had. Um, which would have been the autopsy report, the medical examiner investigator's report, um, autopsy photos and scene photos. Mm-hmm. So I told them I would um, analyze those and get back to them with my opinion. And following that uh, analyzation, I, uh, I met with them again and I told them that in my opinion, it was a homicide, not a suicide, and that um, I agreed to help them out where I could. What sticks um, out to you in this case, and what um, what makes you um, think that it's a homicide versus a suicide? One of the first things that caught my eye uh, when I was looking at, at the case, when I first started examining the case, um, it was... Uh, it, it was first declared a homicide by the medical examiner's office, and then uh, two or three months later, it was changed to suicide. And one of the first things I attempted to do was interview the uh, medical examiner that performed the autopsy. I contacted the 
uh, Dr. Sam Galino, the director of the medical examiner's office in Philadelphia, and uh, he refused to allow me to interview Dr. Osborne, who performed the autopsy. And I couldn't understand why he would do something like that. And in looking at the scene photographs, the first thing that caught my eye was the manner in which the victim was propped up against the kitchen cabinets in a corner as she was sitting on the floor. And if you take a look at the blood on her face, it was dried and coagulated blood running horizontally across her face. And considering the position she was in, one would expect that blood to be running vertically, not horizontally. She was in a different position for a significant amount of time for that blood to dry and coagulate like that prior to her being placed in the position that she was in. The other, the other thing that caught my eye, the photographs, was the sliding bar lock on the front door. If you... If you're familiar with a sliding bar lock on a, it's like on a, a lock that they have on many hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, one piece is mounted on the door jamb, the other piece is mounted on the door. In order to um, open that lock, um, once it's once it's locked, if if someone were to hit the door, one or the other piece has to be completely dislodged from its mounting. In this case, neither piece was dislodged. The one piece on the door was partially um, dislodged, but still on the door, still mounted. There were, when it, the original mounting, there was there were four screws in it. When you take a look at it, there there are three. So where should that this missing screw be? It should be someplace on the floor. You can't. It's not there. It's a particle board door. So where should particles of the door, wood particles of the door be? On the floor beneath it. There aren't any. So that's evidence to me that someone cleaned up. Just some things that caught my eye when I initially took a look at this case. So I, pers- I was persistent about contacting Dr. Osborne, and I contacted a neurological forensic pathologist of my own that I worked with and that I knew. And I had him look at the case. And in his opinion, he also said, in his opinion, that beyond the medical, uh, within a medical certainty that he was comfortable in saying that it was a homicide, not a suicide. I called Dr. Osborne. Dr. Ross posed several questions. Dr. Osborne, it was a very congenial conversation. I asked the doctor several questions and he responded. The last question that I asked the doctor was, why did you change the cause and manner of death from homicide to suicide? And his response was, and these are his exact words, I changed it at the insistence of the police because the police said there was a lack of defense wounds. And I said to him, did any of those police officers have a, met a, a degree in pathology? And with that, the call ended. You know, and in my, in the, in the three of us that were on the call, 
looked at one another and said, when do the police make a decision as to the cause and manner of death? I've been in federal, state, and local law enforcement for over 50 years, and I've been associated with or involved with in some way or conducted over 800 homicide investigations. I have never, ever heard anyone in law enforcement make a decision as to the cause and manner of death. That is supposed to be up to the medical examiner, strictly up to the medical examiner. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Um, let's back up a minute and tell me what you know about Ellen as a person. She was a school teacher, correct? Yes. She was 27 years old. She was a graduate of Penn State. She had gone to Temple University and got her teaching degree. She was one of the teachers at Juniata Park Academy, very well-known, very well-respected. And she was getting ready to get married, right? She was sending out she invitations. Fired. She had just sent out day-to-date invitations for her wedding. So what do we know about that day? Um, what, are, what are police saying? What does her um, fiancé at the time say about that day? Okay, there was a there was a very, very bad snowstorm. Ellen and another teacher were sitting side by side and made calls uh, to all the parents of her students and let them know that there was going to be an early dismissal. Ellen left the school, uh, after, it was afternoon, and an individual from the school helped her clean off the snow off her car. Uh, she left uh, to go home. On the way home, she stopped and filled her tank up with gas and arrived home, I believe, shortly after 1 o'clock. So she's doing things like filling up a tank of gas that wouldn't indicate that she's planning on leaving the planet and commit suicide. No, no. Um, what's, what's really um, uh, strange is she never spoke of her, her engagement at school to any of her fellow teachers. It wasn't discussed. And when one learned that she was engaged, one teacher asked her, one of her fellow teachers asked her, why don't you wear your engagement ring? And she said, oh, it's very expensive, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to wear it, you know, and take the, op- you know, take the chance on losing it or uh, having it stolen. What do you so, think the reason for that is, or why does her parents think that is? Personally, I think she was... Becoming a little hesitant about the future wedding, uh, Ellen didn't send the save the date invitations out. Okay, they were. I, I've learned that they were printed out by the future mother-in-law and given to Ellen's mother. And then Ellen told the mother when to mail mail them out. Okay. So that whole process to me is strange. That's strange. And then also, tell me a little bit more about, was it the fiancé that found her? The fiancé says that he went to the gym 
it was at the gym for about 25 or 30 minutes. He returned and he couldn't get in, couldn't get into the apartment. And then he, in interviewing the concierge or the security man at the desk, he said that the fiance approached him several different times saying that he couldn't get into his apartment. And the security man informed him that it was against company policy for him to assist him on making entry. So if he wanted to get in, he'd have to get in on his own or wait for the maintenance supervisor to get there. And the maintenance supervisor was over in New Jersey. So it would take him quite a while to get there because of the weather. So the fiancé continued, okay, he could get the door open far enough, you know, with the sliding bar lock, but he couldn't, couldn't make entry. At the time, Ellen lived with her fiancé, Sam Goldberg, a New York television producer, who is not and has never been named a suspect in the case. Because again, Ellen's case has been ruled a suicide. But he is the last one to see her. He is the one who found her, according to police. He kicked the door down to their apartment. Now, I'm not sure what was going on with their relationship at around the time of this tragedy. But during my interview, Brennan starts talking about some text messages sent from the fiancé to Ellen. And there's a record of him texting Ellen back and forth. And I believe that he would have access to those. What sticks out to you from these text messages then? Pretty telling in the fact that the fiancé is getting pretty aggravated about not making it, being able to get into the apartment. At the end, there's even a, you know, a subtle threat. And talking to the security man, the security man said to me, one thing I noticed when he came, when he approached me, he said, I was really busy with other tenants and getting their laundry for them and their mail, etc." when he was coming and asking me about helping him get in the uh, apartment. He said, he said he was at the gym, and he said, I noticed he had, like, Timberline boots on. And the security man said to me, Tom, who goes to the gym with Timberline's have boots on, tight boots on? When I took a look at the, that sliding bar lock on the door, I knew that no one, you know, it was not forced from the outside. It was pulled from the inside to make it look like someone made an attempt, okay? If it would have been forced from the outside, one or the other piece of that sliding bar lock would have been completely dislodged from its mounting. Now, about two weeks later, the mother and a friend went to the apartment to uh, make arrangements about some furniture, and... The friend noticed that the sliding bar lock had been completely removed from the door jam and the door, and she took a photograph of it. So I have that photograph. Was he ever a suspect in this case? Uh, I don't know. We've never had. We have never had access to police reports, so I don't know anything about that. And I'm not concerned about suspects right now. The only thing I'm concerned about is the cause and manner of death. We are attempting to have the cause and manner of death changed back to either undetermined or homicide. And once that is done, then we'll, we can ask for an independent prosecutor 
to be appointed and do a complete investigation at that time. Now, according to an article I just read on the case, Goldberg was told by 911 operators to stop CPR when he noticed a knife in her chest. Ellen had 20 stab wounds, 10 on her neck and head, even her stomach, and there were two that went deep into her brain. She had bruises all over her body, yet there was no suicide note, and there was half a bowl of fruit salad on the counter. She had that full tank of gas that she just got on her way home. Didn't make sense. Police were quick to point out that she was seeing a psychiatrist, that she was suffering from anxiety and prescribed Klonopin Ambien. So I asked Brennan about it. Now, I did read a couple articles, and there's been some talk about, you know, she had been talking to um, an expert. She had, she had some prescriptions. There was the toxicology report that, that listed some of the things that were in her system. Um, what's your feelings on that? Okay, um, I had experts look at those. The experts tell me that the amount that was found in her system was even below the normal prescribed amount. The substance that she was on at the time of death was clonopin. Okay, and I have text messages uh, between she, between the victim and her one of her friends, very good friends who was went through anxiety uh, prior to her wedding, okay? So she and Ellen were talking about, you know, the drugs and what, and how they felt on them and things like that. And Ellen was telling her about how well she was doing on clonopin. And the friend asked her, uh, well, how much did you take this morning? And she said, oh, I only took a half. So she wasn't even taking the prescribed amount. Okay, and if you take a look at the psychiatrist that had the had Ellen had visited on on three prior occasions, she had three three of three prior appointments with her. The if you take a look at I had an individual take a look at her notes, and that ex that psychiatrist said she wasn't even she, she wasn't diagnosed with any depression at all. It's not even mild anxiety. And the expert said there was no, in, or the psychiatrist that she was seeing said that there, there was no evidence of self-harm or indication of, that she was suicidal. So these individuals that are quoting or, or stating that, you know, she was suicidal, they aren't even behavioral health professionals. Okay, they're making statements about uh, text messaging between she and her mother and some searches that were found on her computer. And they're interpreting those and they're not even behavioral health professionals. You know, just like I questioned the investigator, the lead investigator attorney for the attorney general's office. Did you folks during your thorough investigation check the dates and times of those searches to see whether or not she would have been home to do those or was she at work and since her 
laptop was not uh, password, password protected, someone else could have been doing the searches. And they never did that. Also talk to me about the, the wounds on her body and how um, your experts have, have said that it would not be possible for her to even do that. We had a three-dimensional analysis done on all of the wounds. Um, if you take a look at those, a neuroforensic pathologist and an individual with his doctorate degree in biomechanical engineering and a computer uh, science PhD did a 3D dimensional analysis of all the wounds, and I can provide you with copies of that. And you'll see that, number one, medically, from a medical position, she would not have been able to admit once the wound to the back of the neck was administered, was inflicted, she would, been, she would not have been capable of inflicting any of the other wounds. You have to understand that the 10 wounds to the back of the neck and the 6.5 centimeter wound to the side of the right side of the scalp were not detected were not learned about until autopsy the following day okay on january 27th so the police at the scene did not know about the 10 wounds to the back of the neck or the 6.5 centimeter wound to the side of the scalp the human body could not have inflicted those wounds. And from a medical perspective, they say that it would not have been possible. And explain to me again why that wouldn't have been possible, because she would have been incapacitated. Is that correct? Yes. The yes. goal right now is, again, to get the cause of death changed. Is that yes. correct? Yes. So... How can the public help in something like that? I mean, I guess at this point, we're hoping that maybe there's another witness, maybe someone knows something, maybe someone told something that they did. Um, what is your hope? We're hoping that that, in fact, does occur because um, some individuals have come forward as a result of this, and some individuals that were not willing um, to speak are, are speaking out now and with the findings that we, you know, we continue to come up with that dispute anything that the Philadelphia Police Department, the Philadelphia DA's office or the Attorney General's office have to say are over, is, is overwhelming. And when you take a look at this case, you have the same individuals review the case that had this case when they were in the Philadelphia DA's office, why didn't they recuse themselves, okay, and have someone else take a look at it? Why didn't they stay involved? I refer to this case, I compare this case to a, 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 a litter box. And no matter how much they scratch around, it's still going to stink. And I, I befriended an assistant district attorney while he was still working in the office. I asked him if he would take a look at it. He said he found the file away from all of the other homicide files that were stored in the office in a closet covered with Christmas decorations. 
And the file box didn't even have a homicide number assigned to it. He said the file was in such disarray, he spent the first two days just trying to organize the file. And during that, he noticed that the medical examiner's report regarding the examination of the victim's spinal cord was not in the file. He contacted the medical examiner's office and inquired about the report. The response he got, he received from the medical examiner's office was, that report does not exist. Wow. How is um, Ellen's mom and dad right now? Are they hopeful that they will um, solve this case, this mystery? They're, they're extremely hopeful. I got involved, this occurred January 26th of 2011. I got involved in the spring of 2013. Um, and this has been, you know, every time we seem to get, make a little headway, there's another obstacle placed in our, in our way. But they are extremely hopeful that we are going to be successful. We just filed the, the, uh, the pleading or the complaint with the court. So as a result of that, we now have avail- you know, discovery available to us. So we're going to be sending out subpoenas to places like the police department, the district attorney's office, et cetera, to get copies of the police reports, the 911 call, the video uh, from the security cameras in the, in the apartment complex, uh, because we have been denied access to any of that. I have had the parents file under the right to know laws to get access to those types of things, and we've been denied access under the Pennsylvania Criminal History and Information Act. But that relates to crimes, okay? They're saying this is a suicide and the case is closed, okay? Suicide in Pennsylvania is not a crime. So don't tell me that it falls within the purview of the Criminal History and Information Act. That's bullshit. What are you hiding? You're not hiding anything. Give it up. I reached out to Brennan before publishing this episode because this interview was actually conducted last year in September of 2019. He got back to me right away and said that he filed a complaint to sue the medical examiner's office to get them to change the cause of death. Trial is set for next year. He added, quote, this. The city has fought us every turn with the BS. The court gave them until 2021 to produce the case documentation, e.g. 911 call, security video from the apartment building showing the fiancé's movements, and police reports and the forensic analysis reports of the victim's laptop and cell phone. They were never analyzed. The fiancés, they just returned them. Now, before I let you go, I want to remind you why Ellen's family, friends, and this investigator are fighting so hard to get answers in this case and understand what really happened. Matt, I've been at this for a little over six and a half years, okay? I have yet to find an individual that has anything, any type of disparaging remark to make about Ellen. Everyone says all she was about was getting people together, getting people together who didn't know one another, 
getting to people together who didn't who didn't care for one another, getting the people people together who um, were having issues with one another. Okay, she was all about that, and everyone loved her. Everyone, and you listen to people, and they would say, if you wanted to have someone take care of your children, Ellen was the one that you would call. Well, she sounds like um, a really amazing person that we all miss out on because of whatever happened to her. Yes, yes. Just and and to to know, uh, I, I can't imagine. I, you know, I've seen so much, you know, in my 50, 53 years, but I can never imagine the impact that losing a sibling a sibling can do to parents and and this was their only child look at all the good things that they have been been denied now i want to thank my guest thomas brennan and send my condolences to ellen's mom and dad josh and sandy greenberg i'll post more on the case including case photos and videos on my website truecrimedeadline.com my youtube and social media accounts under the same name Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now, a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. We're up against networks, we're up against the TV channels, you name it. It's easy, it's free, hit five stars, subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, and include your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster. So the first review comes from Alex, who writes, Have enjoyed listening to Matt true crime and i look forward to more pretty simple and thank you so hit subscribe the next one is titled awesome true crime podcast five star i enjoy listening to the podcast on my hour-long commutes to work and home i like the timing of these and it gives me incentive to research more you care about the victims and families and it shows thank you i do investigators thank you and until next time